Well, good morning. It's good to be with you again um, this morning. It's been a couple of months ago that I preached uh, for Mark, and um, two months ago he gave me three chapters, and this time he gave me six. (laughs) At the rate I'm going, I'll go through the whole Bible very quickly. So we're going to be in Mark chapter 11, so if you want to go ahead and find your place there, that's the uh, text we'll be looking at this morning. I always appreciate the encouragement people give me right before I stand up to speak. Um, Sam said something to me in the hallway, and um, Jin Jin and Rick gave me the thumbs up, and as James Barfield was walking in, he said, bring the heat. Um, And I'm not fiery, I suppose, like um, our pastor is, but that's the reason he's the pastor, right? And we're grateful for him. Um... Well, again, this morning, as I was getting ready, my five-year-old said to me, um, please don't preach as long as Pastor Mark, and I was informed that that's what I did the last time. I went just as long as he did. Um, So she was trying to give me some good advice. And by the way, let me just say, uh, you know, this is only the second time I've preached here, but uh, each time I meet with Pastor Mark prior to the sermon, And Mark always gives good advice. I mean, he really does. He um, helps me with the outline. He helps me think through the flow of the text. He was very encouraging last time and this time. He always gives good advice. Uh, Like my daughter trying to give me good advice this morning. But I want to tell you a little story this morning. There's a big difference between good advice and good news. We all need good advice. But we need something more than good advice. We need good news. So I want to tell you a story this morning. It's a brief story about the difference between good advice and good news. The story is told of a teacher who told her class, if you study hard, if you take good notes, if you attend my class on a regular basis, then you'll do well on the final exam. Good advice. Well, when the final exam came, the teacher noticed a student who was staring at a blank sheet of paper and could not recall any of the notes that he had studied. You know, I, I, I've been in school a lot, and sometimes you have, you have dreams about this. <laughs> you have dreams about going blank on the final um, because you're all nervous about it because, you know, the, the weight of your grade, in some cases, half your grade depends on one exam. So this is what was happening with this student. He could not recall anything he had studied. He had done all the good advice. He had studied hard. He had taken good notes. He was in class all the time. But when the exam came, he drew a blank. So the teacher said, now, just calm down. Try to relax. And then write down everything you know. More good advice. More good advice. Well, the later, the teacher walked by the student again and noticed he had written nothing down. So the teacher looked down at him and said, move over. I'm going to take the exam for you. That's moving from good advice to what? It's good news. Good news. The gospel is good news. In fact, it's surprisingly good news. No one would have come up with a gospel plan on their own. The gospel is not about something you need to do. 
It's not about signing a card. It's not about praying a prayer. Those things can be a response to the gospel. The gospel is what God in Christ has done for you, and that is good news. The gospel demands a response, but it's not really about something you need to do. It's about something God has already done for you. That's the gospel. The gospel is the announcement, and it is surprisingly good news. The teacher took the test for the student. Jesus has already taken the test for you, and he passed. He didn't miss a point. That's good news. And so his record has been transferred to your account. That's almost too good to believe, but that is the gospel. It is the gospel. We are so based on performance. We are so based on something we need to do to earn God's favor. Jesus has already earned that for you. And he has credited his record-keeping to your account. He has passed that test for you. He says, move over, I've already taken the exam, and I passed. So this morning, I'm going to talk to you, preach to you about how God redeems his people in surprisingly unexpected ways. We're going to talk about four surprises. The main application we're going to try to drive at this morning, there'll be a lot of subpoints, but the main application we're going to drive at this morning is the people of God must not reject the grace of God when it comes through an unexpected means. The people of God must not reject the grace of God when it comes through an unexpected means. God wants to give you more grace than you think you're worthy of because that is His character. He is good. The last thing we're going to focus on is Jesus remains faithful to his Father's plan. Jesus remains faithful to his Father's surprising plan even when his people are unfaithful to him. If you are faithless, I have good news for you. He remains faithful. He remains faithful when his people are unfaithful. And we'll look at some people that were awfully unfaithful this morning. So last week... In fact, this whole month, Mark has been taking us through um, the whole book of Mark. And last week he had up on the, on the screen, if you'll move to the next slide, where he talked about three different geographic areas, Galilee, Caesarea Philippi, and Jerusalem. And you can see these geographic areas as Jesus moves through these different areas of Palestine. Um, you could also... Um, book in the entire gospel of mark and our pastor mark <laughs> talked about this he talked about the way the gospel writer mark john mark bookend his gospel remember he started with jesus in chapter one verse one as the son of god now let me pause for just a minute and explain that a little bit that's not just a relational term now it is a relational term jesus was the relational son of god right he was, he was God in the flesh. He was of God. But it's more to it than just that in Mark's gospel. And this is also a title. Jesus is the royal son. He's the one that occupies the throne of David. He's the ultimate son of David that came. And so the son of God, when Mark understands it, is not just a relationship, although that's there. He's also the royal son. He's the king that has come to establish his rule and his reign on the earth. So it's a title and a relationship. 
and it's combined perfectly in Jesus as the Son, the royal Son and the relational Son. And so Mark ends his gospel, right? Mark ends his gospel with this surprising confession. It comes from a Roman soldier who watches Jesus die and declares what? Surely this must be the Son of God. So you have these bookends in Mark. Um, it's a surprising confession from the enemies of God, from a Roman soldier, that this was the Son of God. And the Roman soldier, we don't know how much he understood, but he may have had some inkling, being a Roman soldier and understanding authority, that Jesus carried some sort of authority, even dying. In fact, the, ind the indication is that it was the way Jesus died, not just that he died, but the way he cried out, the way he expressed himself, something about that made this Roman soldier recognize that this is the Son of God. So Mark bookends his gospel with his phrase, the Son of God. So this morning we have four surprises. Four surprises from the gospel of Mark about how God redeems his people in unexpected ways. If you have your bulletin this morning, look at surprise number one. Jesus, the Son of God, excuse me, Jesus, the Son of Man, comes to serve. Now, Jesus fulfills the role of Son of God and Son of Man perfectly. He is one and the same. That's not a separation there. But I want to emphasize for this sermon, Jesus, the Son of Man, comes to serve. Did you know, this is what Pastor Mark has taught us, that that is his favorite phrase for himself. That is Jesus' favorite phrase for himself, Son of Man. Jesus, the Son of Man. So look with me, if you will, if you have a Bible and would like to follow along, look with me in Mark chapter 10. We'll look in verse 42. Mark 10, 42. We'll go through verse 45. Now this text comes on the heels of James and John wanting to be at Jesus' right hand when he comes into his kingdom, and that didn't set well with the other ten. There seemed to be some jealousy there. So Jesus begins to tell them what authority looks like in his kingdom. So this is what he says. And Jesus called them, called, called them to him, this is the twelve, and Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. So he's immediately telling them, you know what, how the Romans do this. You know how the Gentile, the pagan world does this. They exercise great authority, and they use that, that authority to put people under their boot. They lord it over them, is, is, is the phrase. And then he contrasts the way his kingdom's going to come. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's a surprising statement. The Son of Man, which was a reference to this divine human figure in Daniel chapter 7, 
And from Daniel's understanding, that divine human figure would, be, would establish the final kingdom on the earth. All the other kingdoms would fade away. And this king, this son of man, in Daniel chapter 7, would establish his kingdom over the whole earth. So from their understanding, this would, ha this would be a king with ultimate authority. And that's why it was such a contrast for them to hear, this king is not coming to set up the kind of authority you're thinking about. He's not coming so you can bow the knee to him. He's coming to serve you. Now, those things I said would happen eventually. We will serve. We will bow. But for now, the way his kingdom come is, is, is his service to us, not our service to him. In Daniel chapter 7, let me just read these verses. It says, And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Jesus didn't come to be served, but to serve. And the ultimate way he serves, he says in verse 45, is to do what? To give his life a ransom for many. He was going to pay the debt that you owed. You know the old song we used to say? He paid a debt he did not owe. I owed a debt I could not pay. I needed someone to wash my sins away. Jesus paid the debt. He was the ransom. Not only did he pay the ransom, it says here what? His life was the ransom. He, wasn't, he didn't just give the offering, he, he was the offering. Give his life a ransom for many. It was the ultimate act of service. Michael Card, I don't know if you know who he is, uh, used to listen to his music quite a bit, especially in the 80s and 90s. I know that, that, that dates me. He's still a good singer. He's still a good songwriter. He's a theologian as well. Uh, Michael Carr captured this irony about the Son of Man serving in his surprising song called Scandalon. One of the verses in the song says, They were looking for a king to conquer and kill. Who had ever thought he'd be so meek and humble? Jesus came to serve. They were looking for a king to defeat the Romans, to set up God's kingdom on the earth, to kill and to conquer, and Jesus came to serve. He came to ransom us. This was shocking and surprising that the Son of Man, this picture they had of the Son of Man ruling and reigning, would actually be the one who would come and serve, be the one who would come and die. It was a shocking and surprising to them that the, Jesus was the Son of Man, first of all, and that the Son of Man would actually come to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The application is, is clear here. Whom are you serving? Whom, I, whom am I serving? In what ways could your service be both a surprise and a blessing to others? If Christ lives in you, you will want to serve. Now, I'm not saying we do it perfectly or we feel that way all the time, but there he is in you the motivation to serve. All I'm doing is calling out that not so much a requirement as I'm trying to tap into who you already are in Christ, a servant. 
This is who you are. This is who Jesus is. This is why he says the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve. The other application I would make here is it can be difficult for others to serve you sometimes. It can be difficult when you let other people serve you. How difficult was it for the disciples when Jesus washed their feet? Sometimes others' service to us feels quite uncomfortable, whether it's receiving help from them financially or whether it's whatever it may be. Let others serve you. We all need to be served sometimes. We all need help. We're all broken. Jesus came to serve, and sometimes his service to you will be through someone else, and it may be through an unexpected means and an unusual person. I don't know how God's going to do that. So the first surprise is Jesus, the Son of Man, this king, actually comes to serve. And that struck them as very new and surprising. Surprise number two. Jesus curses a fig tree, condemns rebellious tenants, and judges a nation. And this is where Jesus, James, kind of brings the heat. <laughs> okay. Jesus curses a fig tree, Jesus condemns rebellious tenants, and Jesus judges a nation. Look with me in Mark chapter 11, look down in verse 12. Now, after he has already entered Jerusalem, he's come on a donkey, which is another way to say he came to serve. He didn't come on a white, a white stallion. He came on a donkey. It fulfilled Zechariah, but it was also an image that he came to serve. He came on a beast of burden, another image of the Son of Man coming to, to serve. This is the day after that. On the following day, this is where it gets intense. These are intense scriptures. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard it. What a weird story. Jesus curses a fig tree. What's that about? And it wasn't even the season for figs, Mark says. Why would he curse a fig tree? It's not the season for figs. Actually, the word season there is the word kairos. It's, it's really used more for the idea of um, there's only leaves when they're should be fixed. It's a, it's a picture of the nation, the lifeless nation that only had leaves and no fruit. It's what Mark is driving at here. It's a little obscure, but it seems to be the indication. So right after he curses this fig tree and the disciples take notice of it, what does Jesus do? He goes to the temple and he cleanses the temple. He cleans house in the temple. Yes, he's, he's angry here as he cleans out his father's house. He calls it, he said, they've made it a den of thieves. Instead of people coming to be blessed and to be encouraged and to hear from God, they were robbing people of the very life of God. 
It was a den of thieves, he said. And then, so you have him cursing the fig tree, you have him cleansing the temple, and then look in verse 20. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree wither away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you have cursed has withered. Multiple times in the Old Testament, Israel is referred to as the fig tree. In Jeremiah, in Hosea, in Joel, what was Jesus doing here? Hear me. This is important. He was cursing the nation. He was saying, we're done. Now imagine if you're one of the disciples and you're, you're wondering what he means by this. It was not lost on them that Israel was considered the fig tree. That's not lost on them. But they are trying to wrap their minds around he's cursed this fig tree and it's withered away from the root. In other words, it's gone. Less than 24 hours, it's dead. Trying to understand this metaphor of Jesus cursing a fig tree. So, in chapter 12, he gives them another illustration. Actually, this is more of an allegory. So let's read chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. These are some, this is some kind of a longer text, but just bear with me. We'll read this text. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head, and they treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and they killed him. And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. He still had one other, a beloved son. Finally he said, Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants. Jesus has cursed the fig tree. He's condemned the tenants. He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And if you think they didn't get it, they got it. Look in verse 12. And they were seeking to arrest him, speaking of the, the uh, Pharisees and the scribes and the elders, but they were seeking to arrest him, but they feared the people, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. No kidding. Jesus was judging Jerusalem. Jesus was about to pass judgment on the temple. This, is, this was surprising for them to hear this. And if it wasn't clear from those two stories, Jesus makes it abundantly clear in chapter 13. Look in chapter 13. And, and apparently it wasn't so clear. 
okay? Perhaps it was clear to the, to the Pharisees, but, but the disciples still had some questions about this. Now, get this. The temple was the symbolic, was the, wasn't just, um, it was the place of worship. It wasn't just symbolic. It was the place where they went to worship. It was the place where the sacrifices were made. It was the place where the Holy of Holies, Mark talked about this last week, it was the Holy of Holies was there. The ark was there. Aaron's rod was there. Um, the bowl of manna, the Ten Commandments. This was, this was God's house. And remember, Jesus had just cleansed God's house. He had told them, you've made it a den of thieves. And yet, here he is saying, I'm judging this place. I am, I am cursing the fig tree. I'm cursing the nation. I'm condemning the tenants. Those that had charge of the nation, I'm condemning them as well. And then if it's not clear, he makes it even more clear in chapter 13. And as he came out of the temple, one of the disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. This was the temple that Herod had built. It was a magnificent piece of architecture. Huge stones. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Hear what Jesus said. There will not be left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. He's passing judgment on the temple. He is bringing the heat. So in the rest of Matthew 13, he answers the disciples' questions about when that was going to happen. He gives a lot of signs, and hear me, because some of you have been taught, as the way I was taught, that this is about the end of the world. It is not. This text is about the destruction of Jerusalem. It's not about the end of the world as we know it. I'm not saying there's not going to be an end, but that is not what he's talking about here. He's talking about the destruction of the temple. So he answers their questions about when that's going to be. He gives them all the signs. And then to make it clear it's going to happen in their lifetime, look at what he says. So he answers, what are the signs? He answers, when is it going to happen? And look at what he tells them in verse 30. He gives them all these signs up to verse 30, and then he says, Truly I say to you, chapter 13, verse 30, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. There's really no way to spiritualize that text. This will happen. These things will not happen until... Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Well, what happened within... 40 years. Jerusalem was destroyed. That's exactly what happened. And the temple was burned to the ground. Jesus predicted this was exactly what would happen. This is why at least some scholars speculate or will say that the entire Bible was written before A.D. 70. The entire New Testament was written before A.D. 70 because in A.D. 70 is when the temple was destroyed by the Romans. And surely, if you were writing after that fact, you would have pointed back to this event as proof Jesus knew what he was talking about. If you read the accounts from Josephus, uh, Josephus, he was a Jewish historian. The destruction of the temple was horrific. An enormous fire. And Josephus records that 1.1 
million Jews died. Now, this is 2,000 years ago. 1.1 million Jews died in Jerusalem. This is why Jesus says, I'm going to cut short those days. So this had to be shocking. It had to be surprising to the disciples who heard not one stone is going to be left on another, that the symbol of their faith, their pride and joy, the temple would be raised, it would be leveled. It had become, according to Jesus, a den of thieves. So there are two surprising things about this event under point number two. There are two surprising things about this event. And I hope I can make the application to us because it's, while I believe that text is about the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, I think that happened in A.D. 70, there are some applications for us. Here's the first one. When Jesus told them, when you see these events coming, he told them to do something against conventional wisdom. Conventional wisdom was that when the invading armies came through that land, everybody was to go where? To Jerusalem, because they could find protection there. Don't stay out in the countryside, go to Jerusalem. What did Jesus tell them to do? He told them to flee to the mountains. He told his people to do just the opposite thing from conventional wisdom. That's why the believers... <laughs> didn't suffer the persecution that everybody else did because they believed Jesus. They had to have faith to go against conventional wisdom and believe that what he said was going to happen. When they saw those signs happen, when they saw those armies coming in, they didn't stay in Jerusalem. They left town. This is why the destruction wasn't even worse on God's people because they listened to what Jesus had said. He predicted that Jerusalem would be destroyed. And when they saw those events happening, they left. They went to the mountains. It says that in verse 14. He says, But when you see the abomination of desolation, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Get out of town. It requires faith, doesn't it, to go against conventional wisdom. The other surprise that takes place here is that Jesus was clearing the temple. Jesus was destroying that temple because he wanted them to know that he was the ultimate temple. He was God's place. Not a stone temple. He was the place people meet with God. He was the ultimate temple. And part of the way for them to understand that was to raise the temple to destroy it, to pass judgment on it so that they would know he's the temple. There's no need to have a rebuilt temple when you have the ultimate temple. Jesus is the ultimate temple of God. He's the ultimate place to meet with God. This is one of the, maybe not one of the reasons it happened, but it's one of the results of it happening. They could see clearly now, oh, you're the ultimate temple. You're the ultimate place where we meet with God. He would be the sacrifice. He would be the temple. He would be the high priest. 
he would fulfill everything related to the temple and he himself would be the temple. This is even seen in the accusations they made against Jesus. Remember, before the Sanhedrin, they said, this man's the one that said he would destroy the temple and raise it up in three days. When he was on the cross, they made the same accusations about him. This man is the one who said he would destroy the temple and raise it up in three days. They misunderstood. The resurrection was him raising the temple up in three days. He was the place where we meet with God. A couple of applications here that I think are, are clear. One is we have to trust the wisdom of God over conventional wisdom. It's obvious. We have to believe what God says over conventional wisdom. However that applies. Is your value system rooted in the Scripture? Is your value system rooted in the cross and the resurrection? Because that will go against conventional wisdom. Conventional wisdom says if two people love each other, it's okay for them to get married. <laughs> Regardless of their gender. That's conventional wisdom. It really is. It's just not God's wisdom. I could, I could cite so many other examples. Jesus is God's place. He is the one he is where we meet God. That doesn't diminish the need for the local church because by extension, Jesus dwells in the corporate body. He dwells in us corporately. There is a need for us to meet and experience the presence of God, but if you want to have a relationship with God, it's not about coming here. It's about meeting Him. He is the place where we meet with God. And when the temple was destroyed, it was shocking to them. And by the way, once the temple was destroyed the church seemed to take off at that point. Now, it had already been growing, but that A.D. 70 was a marker, especially for the Gentile church. They were no longer persecuted by the Jews because that whole system was laid waste, and the church began to grow. Surprise number three. Jesus elevates the role of women as heralds of his message. Jesus elevates women, elevates the role of women as heralds of his message. Look back in Mark 12 and look in verse um, 41. We won't spend much time here, but these scriptures are worth looking at. Mark 12, 41. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watch the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small, small copper coins, which makes a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Jesus is highlighting 
a woman who was poor and a widow. He's bringing attention to her. We'll look at why in just a moment. I want to show you another woman, though, he, he highlights in chapter 14, look in verse 3. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster, an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. Two women with opposite gifts. One had hardly nothing, one had a lot. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Why is this so surprising? We'll, we'll read about one more surprise in just a moment with women in chapter 16, but why, why was this so surprising? Why was this so shocking that Jesus would elevate the role of women? I need to point out here that God has always valued the role of women. You see it in the Old Testament. It was just that that culture had diminished their role, had reduced their role. And one of the, one of the things that the Jews would pray, or some Jews would pray, was they would thank God they were not women. It's a horrible thing. And so Jesus is he's highlighting their roles. He's restoring them as daughters of Eve. He's elevating their role. Mark is noting the giving nature of both of these women. He's highlighting how both of them have this giving nature. Giving is part of God's character. And in noting their giving, Mark is highlighting the God-like character of both of these women. In other words, he's saying to those men, you think God just favors you? I'm telling you, they have God-like character. Look at how they give. For God so loved the world, he did what? He gave. A primary characteristic of God is that he gives, and, and so Mark is highlighting the giving nature of both of these women. He's highlighting the fact that they too were like Jesus. They were like the Son of Man because they came to what? Serve. How did they serve? By their giving. Mark is drawing attention to how these women give, how they have God-like character, as opposed to some of the men who didn't. There is no limitation on a woman's faith in Jesus. They can develop the same kind of character and godlike qualities as any man. For us, that may not sound new, but for them, that was pretty new. He's highlighting, he's elevating their role. The widow in the temple, I just want to mention this, the widow in the temple, if you were to evaluate her giving by our standards she would have given 
a dollar eighty-eight. Ninety-four cents for two coins, a dollar eighty-eight. And Jesus says it's all she had to give on. It's all she had to live on. It wasn't about what she gave. It was about her heart. Her 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 godlike character that, that Mark and Jesus are drawing attention to. Whereas in Mark, whereas in Mark chapter 14 with Mary, her amount by our standards would have been $36,000. The smallest amount is never overlooked and the largest amount is never wasted when it's given to Jesus. Isn't that good to know? The smallest amount is not overlooked and the largest amount is never wasted. They accused Mary, who was the sister of Lazarus, we know from other texts. They accused her of wasting this. What an insult to Jesus. The poor widow... In chapter 12 showed a complete dependence upon God. She gave all she had to live on. She didn't give out of her surplus like the men were given. <laughs> she gave out of her poverty. In reality, she was announcing the gospel just like she depended on God for her needs after she had given it all. Jesus would be completely dependent as well. He would give his all and trust his Father to raise him up. She was forecasting the gospel by her giving. She gave it all and depended on God to meet her needs. Jesus paid it all and depended on God to raise him up. She was forecasting, she was preaching, as it were, the gospel. Now, I know what some of you are thinking when I just said she was preaching. <laughs> I'm going to explain that in just a moment. With Mary, that we just read about, she did what she could with what she had when she could do it. She did what she could with what she had when she could do it. If she had delayed, she would have missed the opportunity to announce his burial. She was announcing his burial. She was proclaiming his burial. He was going to be buried. Like the widow, Mary announced his gospel. The anointing was for the burial. She spared no expense as she poured out the oil. Jesus, later in chapter 14, would, would use the same word, I'm pouring out what? My blood. Just like she was pouring out the oil, he would pour out his blood. She, too, was announcing the gospel. Shocking and surprising, perhaps for us, certainly for them hearing this, that he was highlighting them as these heralds of his message. There's a couple of inferences, inferences that some people take from this text that may be worth talking about for just a moment. One was that when the twelve didn't believe that Jesus was going to die, guess who did? She did. She believed he was going to be buried. She anointed him for burial. That was perhaps... True. We're, we're not told what she knew or what she believed, but at least could be implied from this text that all those times 
She had heard him teach about this. She believed him and anointed his body for burial. That could be a case. Some also will imply from this text that she was anointing him as king. Now, if she was doing that, Jesus certainly corrected her understanding because he says it was for his what? His burial, which in a sense was his crowning moment, right? Or the whole process was part of his crowning moment, the fact that he was day, uh, the fact that he died and was raised again. But get this, if she was anointing him as king, this is very interesting, that would have been enormously surprising and shocking for everybody there. Why? Because only a priest or a prophet should anoint someone as king. She had no right to do that. But here she was. And, and not only was she doing it, not a priest, not a prophet, she was doing it in the home of a leper. All these shocking things going on. She acted in faith. She anointed his body for burial. And look in Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16. We won't take time to read this whole chapter. Mark is, uh, Pastor Mark has already commented on the way this chapter ends. I just want to point out that the original heralds of the resurrection again were who? The women. Now they failed at it, <laughs> but they were given the task of it. Now I don't think the Bible supports women as elders. It's what our elders think, it's what uh, Pastor Mark thinks, and I think that's supported from Scripture. But let's not underestimate either. <laughs> the way God uses women, the way he has. And it was shocking to them that here was a woman announcing his burial. Here were women announcing the resurrection. And if you go back to Luke, women announced his what? His birth. All the major aspects of the gospel, women were the heralds of that message. Now we can't you can't jump from that to assume the role of elder. I think that's a bridge way too far. But let's not diminish their role. And, why, and husbands, I would say this. This is from 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3 says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to her, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Physically, women are weaker. I'm not saying anything new showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Not sub-heirs, they're co-heirs. Since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. They're just as much an heir as any man is. Women, wives are co-heirs of the grace of life. Again, perhaps that's not new to you. It was certainly new to them to hear those kind of things. Why else would Peter emphasize this? <laughs> because the husbands needed to know this, that they are fellow heirs, they are co-heirs. And then he adds this, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. In other words, husbands, if you're not honoring your wife as a co-heir, 
God may hinder your prayers. How's that for motivation? That's what he says. I think that application carries itself. And finally, we'll come to the last point this morning. Surprise number four. This is where I want to hone in because I think this is so important for us to hear. Jesus remains faithful to his disciples even when they are unfaithful to him. Or Jesus remains faithful to his people even when they are unfaithful to him. So look in Mark chapter 14 and look in verse 66. Mark 14, 66. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls, now this is, of course, after they've all ran away from him, not just Peter, the other 11 ran too. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seen Peter warming himself. She looked at him and said, You were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders, said, bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And he immediately the rooster the, the rooster crowed a second time and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him but before the rooster crows twice you will deny me three times and he broke down and wept one translation says he wept bitterly I don't know everything that was going on in Peter's heart but let me venture just a few thoughts about what was going on with Peter he may have thought something like this how could I have failed so completely after walking with him for three years? Ever had the thought you should be further along than you are? You should be more mature, and yet you find yourself dealing with the same stuff? We don't know how weak we are sometimes. Peter walked with Jesus for three years and denied that he even knew him. Another thing Peter may have thought, I knew better and did it anyway. How many of us have been done that? I knew better and I did it anyway. Or Peter may have thought, Jesus called me the rock. I'm no better than quicksand. Me, the leader of the disciples, I'm not worthy to be called one of his followers. The leader, I can't even follow. How could I call down curses on myself and say I never knew him? Peter called down a curse on himself. He says, I, I, never, I never knew him. He may have thought something like this. I am probably responsible for the eternal damnation of everybody who heard me today. I had a chance to speak for Jesus and I denied him. They're in hell and it's going to be my fault. Imagine the weight of that, that kind of thinking. 
you may have thought the others will never trust me again sure they, they all ran away but I'm supposed to lead her they can't trust me anymore when I failed so completely and no this was, this was a complete denial let me pause because I think these questions come up this was different than what Judas did Judas was cold and calculated Jesus said of Judas I've chosen 12 and one of you is a, de is a devil Jesus said of Judas it had been better for him if he had never been born what Peter did and what Judas did is apples and oranges it's two different things you know the Bible even says of Judas that he used to pilfer, pilfer what was put into the money box he used to steal the money Peter denied him in a moment of intense weakness. Judas betrayed him. It's two different things. If you've got a question about that later, I'll answer those. But just know we're talking about two different things. So how does Jesus respond to Peter? What does Jesus do with Peter? What do we do with people who have failed grossly? How does Jesus respond to Peter? Look in chapter 16. I love this. Look in chapter 16. Look in verse um, 7. I love this. Chapter 16, verse 7. But go, tell his disciples and Peter. And Jason taught the class this morning. And one of the things he brought out in the class was that when you call somebody's name, you take ownership over them. You have authority over them. You know what Jesus was saying to Peter? You are still mine. You still belong to me. When Peter denied he knew Jesus, Jesus called him by name. That's good news. There was a complete restoration. You see this especially at the end of John's Gospel. Peter denied he knew Jesus. He denied his name. And yet here is Jesus calling Peter by name just a few hours later. <laughs> Go tell my disciples and Peter. You may be focused on the depths of your sin. God is focused on the plan to restore and to renew. He wants to remind you of the cross. He wants to remind you that he raised up his son. He'll raise you up. Good news for all of us that failed, isn't it? Your failure is not final. It's good news. It's good news. Remember also that Mark, John Mark, Pastor Mark, John Mark, was a disciple of Peter. Peter even called John Mark, my true son in the faith. I wonder if Peter's was the one. Peter was the source for Mark's material. But I wonder if Peter told Mark of his history of failure as a way to encourage Mark to write his gospel. Why would that be important to Mark? Because Mark knew, knew what it was like to run too. Some scholars think that Mark was the one that ran away at the end of chapter 14. He was the young man that ran away because it's only recorded in Mark's gospel. 
So Mark ran then. Mark ran when he was a when he was with Paul. When they went out on their first journey with Barnabas, things got rough, and what did Mark do? He ran away. He ran back. So here is Peter, now the leader of the Jerusalem church, and here is Mark writing the gospel. Failure doesn't have to be final. God never intended for your failure, as gross as it is, as bad as you think it is, to be final. close with a a quote here from A.W. Tozer. I want us to hear this because I think it's so helpful. God cannot use a man or a woman greatly until he wounds them deeply. It's out of the best leaders are the ones that have been broken deeply because they identify with people and they... (laughs) They never come at ministry with pride anymore because they've been broken so deeply and then they've watched God restore them. This was Peter. This can be us. Your failure is not final. God remains faithful even when you're unfaithful. And it's his faithfulness and his goodness that restores. John.